on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came to the tomb bringing the spices they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, and they went in but did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. So she, that's Mary Magdalene, went running to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said to them, They've taken the the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they put him. At that, Peter and the other disciple went out heading for the tomb. And while they, the women who remained at the tomb, were, were there, they were perplexed about this. And suddenly, two men stood by them in dazzling clothes. So the women were terrified and bowed down to the ground. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? asked the men. He is not here. But he is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was in Galilee, saying, It is necessary that the Son of Man be betrayed into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and rise on the third day. And they remembered his words. Returning from the tomb, they reported all these things. Meanwhile, the two, John and Peter, were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and got to the tomb first. Stooping down, he saw the linen clothes lying there, but he did not go in. Then following him, Simon Peter also came. And he entered the tomb and saw the linen, the linen clothes lying there. The wrapping that had been on his head was not lined with the linen clothes, but was folded up in a separate place by itself. The other disciple who had reached the tomb first then also went in, saw, and believed. For they did not yet understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to the place where they were staying. But Mary, who had followed them back, stood outside the tomb crying. And as she was crying, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting there, sitting where Jesus' body had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you crying? Because they've taken away my Lord, she told them, and I don't know where they've put him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but did not know it was Jesus. Woman, Jesus said to her, why are you crying? Who is it that you're seeking? Supposing he was the gardener, she replied, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary, and turning around, she said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Don't cling to me, Jesus told her, since I have not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brothers and tell them that I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and she told them what he said to her. Now that same day, two of them were on their way to a village called Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. Together they were discussing everything that had taken place, and while they were discussing and arguing, Jesus himself came near and began to walk along with them. But they were prevented from recognizing him. Then he asked them, What is this dispute that you're having with each other as you are walking? And they stopped walking and looked discouraged. The one named Cleopas answered him, Are you 
the only visitor in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that happened there in these days? What things? He asked them. So they said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet powerful in action and speech before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we were hoping that he was the one who was about to redeem Israel. Beside all of this, it's the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women from our group astounded us. They arrived early at the tomb, and when they didn't find his body, they came and reported that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see him. He said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And they came near the village where they were going, and he gave the impression that he was going farther, but they urged him, stay with us because it is almost evening, and now the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. And it was as he reclined at the table with them that he took that he took the bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to them. And then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. That very hour, they got up and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven, and those with them gathered together, who said, The Lord has truly been raised and has appeared to Simon. And as they were saying these things, he himself stood in their midst, and he said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and terrified and thought they were seeing a ghost. Why are you troubled? He asked them. Why do, you dar- why do doubts arise in your hearts? Look at my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. Because a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you can see I have. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead the third day, and repentance for forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. You know, the resurrection of Jesus distinguishes Christianity from all the other religions of the world. There is no other religion other than Christianity that can point to an empty tomb and say he is risen and if Jesus Christ had not risen we would have never heard of him church without the resurrection Jesus was nothing more than a deceiver a liar and yet without the resurrection Christianity would fall the gospel would be meaningless. And so for that reason, the skeptics have aimed their largest guns at this one particular event in all of the the gospel of Jesus, in all of the story of Christ, and all of the history of the church. The skeptics have aimed their largest guns at this one event, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
And so tonight, we're going to look at three things. We're first going to look at the protesting of the resurrection. Then we're going to look at the proofs of the resurrection. And then we're going to look at the power of the resurrection, what it means to us today. And so first of all, the protesting of the resurrection. Why discuss in a Christian church the protesting of the resurrection? Here's why. Because the protests that I'm just going to briefly share with you are still being circulated today. And so I believe that it's necessary for us as Christians to be reminded of the truth of the resurrection and to have a firm understanding in what the scripture says, what the, what the uh, protests are against the, the, the resurrection, and to understand that so we have a rock-solid faith in who Jesus is and what the Bible claims of him. So the, the resurrection can be interpreted in three different ways. The first way is that the resurrection was a great hoax. That the resurrection is false. And there are several theories for this. I'm just going to give you a couple quickly. The first theory is called the swoon theory. The swoon theory. And, and the swoon theory just simply says that Jesus didn't actually die. That he just fainted on the cross and everyone thought that he was dead. And then he was embalmed and survived that. And then he spent three days and nights in a cold tomb without any medical treatment and survived that. And then in a weakened state, he managed to roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb. And then he was able to convince the disciples that he had a glorified body. And finally, he went away to die in solitude. Now listen, to believe that story is more difficult than just simply to believe the New Testament declaration that Jesus was raised from the dead by the power of the God who created life in all things. The fact is, the Roman soldiers, as we looked at last week at the crucifixion, the Roman soldiers were very good at killing people through crucifixion. They were very good at it. Thousands of people were crucified. There is no way they could have botched the crucifixion of Jesus. But that's one of the theories. A second theory is called the wrong tomb theory. You can imagine what this one says. Everyone went to the wrong tomb. And because they went to the wrong tomb, they found it to be empty and they erroneously thought that Jesus had risen. But the fact is, the burial of Jesus... Uh, took place, he was buried in the tomb of a known man, one of the Pharisees, Joseph of Arimathea. It's reported in all of the Gospels, providing solid evidence that there was a known tomb that was discovered empty. The problem with this view is that if the disciples had gone to the wrong tomb, the Pharisees would have gone to the right tomb and would have produced a body when the disciples were making these claims to silence their claims. The, the third theory is the, called the vision theory. And this theory uh, suggests that the disciples just believed so firmly in the, in, that Jesus would be raised from the dead that they had visions that Jesus was alive when Jesus was not actually alive they say that people just thought they were seeing the risen Jesus and and as time went on the stories grew and 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 it grew into this full-fledged uh, belief of the resurrected Jesus 
Now, the fact is, the Jews could have ended the disciples' claims by merely opening the tomb and producing the body, okay? The, the fourth theory that I'll, I'll share with you uh, under these hoaxes, the, the hoax theory, is the stolen body theory. And this is still a very, very common one, and that is that someone stole the body of Jesus, be it the Jews or the Romans or, or uh, the disciples who often are the ones who, are, who have been said to steal the body of Jesus. The Jews had no reason to, to steal the body. Uh, again, they would have produced the body it, when the disciples started making these claims. The, the Romans had no motive to steal the body. The disciples, who they say had the motive to steal the body, would have had to overpower the guards in order to get to the body of Jesus. And then they would have to go on and they would have to proclaim that Jesus was risen for the rest of their lives. And they would all be martyred for preaching the message of the resurrection of Jesus, something that they would then know was a lie. This theory, one scholar, I believe, aptly states this. He says, no great moral structure like the early church based as it was upon the lifelong persecution and personal suffering could have reared its head upon a statement which every one of the 11 apostles knew to be a lie. So there's this, there's the, the first way to interpret the resurrection is it's a big hoax. The second way that sometimes the resurrection is interpreted is mythology. It's nothing but a myth, a story with a teaching point. The concept, some believe, of the resurrection isn't even, they say, found anywhere in Judaism. It's unknown to even the New Testament and that the disciples in the early church simply made these concepts up. Well, this ideology isn't new. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, there were resurrection deniers in the church of Corinth. There were people inside the church of Corinth who said, who, who denied the resurrection. The Sadducees, a religious group in Jesus' day, didn't believe in a resurrection. They didn't believe that it was taught in the Pentateuch. But Jesus challenged their, uh, their thinking, their teaching. And he said this to them before his resurrection. He said, you're wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Jesus looked at the Pharisees and said, you're wrong. You don't know what the scripture says. Go back and read your Old Testament and you don't understand the power of God, that he's, God is able to raise the dead. And he says this, as for the resurrection of the dead, you have not read what was said to you by God. That's Matthew chapter 22. After his resurrection on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, we read it a moment ago, Jesus says to the two disciples, Cleopas being one of them, these two disciples, here Jesus speaks to them and he's, he's talking to them because they didn't themselves believe that Jesus had been risen. And what does he say? He says, did not the Christ have to suffer these things then enter his glory? He says, didn't the Messiah in the Old Testament, wasn't this prophesied that he would have to die, that he would have to suffer, then enter into his glory? Then beginning with, all, with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them what was said in all scriptures concerning himself. So you understand what's going on there? Jesus went to the Old Testament and he taught the resurrection and he taught the resurrection of the Messiah. 
If the resurrection uh, myth theory is true, somebody should have told King David in the Psalms because he speaks with what I believe to be spectacular specificity about the resurrection of the one to come. He says, therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful ones see decay. David speaks of the resurrection. Job, the first book written, the oldest book in the Bible, Job at the very end of himself, having lost everything and having been ridiculed and questioned by his closest friends, he turns to God and the hope of the resurrection, as he declares, he said, I know that my Redeemer lives and at the last he will stand upon the earth and after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself and my eyes shall behold and not another. Daniel prophesied, this is Daniel 12 too, many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall wake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And both John, I'm sorry, Jesus and Paul both uh, affirmed in the New Testament Daniel's prophecy, quoting Daniel's prophecy. Isaiah also prophesied of a physical resurrection. He said, your dead will live, your bodies will rise. Awake and sin, you who dwell in the dust, for you will be covered with the morning dew, and the earth will bring out the departed spirits. So listen, what am I getting at? The teaching of the resurrection begins in the Old Testament. It begins there. So the resurrection was not some novel conspiratorial concept uh, concocted by the minds of some desperate disciples after the crucifixion of Jesus. There's a third way to interpret the resurrection, and that's the gospel way. That's the Bible way. That's Paul's way. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul declares a literal bodily resurrection of Jesus as we have just read from the gospel accounts. So let's talk about some of the proofs then of the resurrection. What are some of the proofs of the resurrection? I'll give you three. The first one is the empty tomb. The empty tomb. All the objections, uh, modern and, and ancient, about the validity of the resurrection of Jesus are shattered by this one question. Where's the body? Where did the body of Jesus go? The Jews didn't have it. Again, they could have produced it to prove the disciples wrong. The disciples didn't have it. That would have been psychologically and spiritually impossible for them to live dedicated martyrs' lives and deaths as they did. Impossible. Though Jesus mentioned that he would rise from the dead many times to the disciples, it seemed like it never penetrated their minds and their hearts. Even at the crucifixion, when Jesus was arrested and Jesus was crucified, they were dumbfounded. They were shocked. They, they couldn't wrap their minds around the idea of crucifixion being a part of God's plan. Remember Peter saying to Jesus, when Jesus said, I, the Son of Man has to go to Jerusalem and be crucified, Je Peter's like, yeah, not on my watch, Jesus. 
We'll die for you, right? Uh, you'll remember he took up a sword when, Je- when they came to arrest Jesus in the garden, and Jesus like, put the sword away. Put the sword away, Peter, right? The disciples, when, when Jesus was crucified, this destroyed what they thought was, was going to happen. They thought Jesus was going to become the king, the ruler, t- uh, deliver them from the Romans. And so talk of the crucifixion, the times that Jesus told them, when, and he, when he told them that he'd die and that he would raise again the third day, it's as if they just didn't get what he was saying to them. Then when they heard that he was alive after the resurrection, they didn't believe at first. You remember Thomas. Remember Thomas. Thomas is like, yeah, unless I see the wounds, unless I can put my hand in in the wound in his side, I will not believe, right? As we read, uh, uh, those on the road to Emmaus, it says that when Jesus approached them on that road, they looked discouraged, this is a, Jesus had already risen by this time. They're discouraged. They report that the women had heard of, that they had met Jesus, that they'd seen Jesus, or they'd seen the vision of the angels, but they didn't believe. And they said, man, we were really hoping that this Jesus was our Messiah. We were really hoping about that. You follow me? The disciples didn't believe. For all they knew, Jesus was dead. At the height of the of desert storm, a, a lady by the name of Ruth Dillow, a mother from Kansas, she received a very sad message from the Pentagon. This is February 27, 1991. It stated that her son, Clayton Carpenter, private first class, had stepped on a mine in Kuwait and was dead. Ruth later wrote, I can't begin to describe my grief and shock. It was almost more than I could bear. For three days I wept. For three days I expressed anger and loss. For three days people tried to comfort me to no avail. The loss was too great. You can imagine what she was going through. But three days after she had received that message, the phone rang and the voice at the other end of the phone said, Mom, it's me. I'm alive. Ruth said, I <laughs> I couldn't believe it at first. But then I recognized his voice, and he really was alive. The message from the Pentagon was all a big mistake. She said, I laughed, I cried, I felt like turning cartwheels because my son, who I thought was dead, was really alive. I'm sure none of you can even begin to understand how I felt. Perhaps we can't, but I can tell you something. I think the disciples... No, they knew how she felt. They were convinced Jesus was dead, that Jesus at the crucifixion, that he was dead and departed. They would not see him on this earth again. And so when they heard the words, he is risen, man, they just couldn't but wrap their heads around it. And at first they doubted. But the tomb was empty. Neither the Jews nor the Romans could produce a body to, to disprove the, the claim of the disciples that Jesus was risen. And so we have the empty tomb. The second proof of the resurrection is the eyewitness testimony. 
And Paul gives us, if, if you have a Bible, the words will be here up on the screen, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I'd encourage you to do a, a study in 1 Corinthians 15. Read it tomorrow on Resurrection Sunday. I encourage you to do that. But, but Paul gives a list of the eyewitnesses that saw the resurrected Jesus. Paul says this, he appeared to Peter, to Cephas. Jesus appeared on the day he arose from the dead, and a few times after that, in the next 40 days, to Peter and then to the 12. We read about one of those times. There are other occasions that are recorded in the Gospels. On the very day that Jesus arose from the dead, they were uh, there in the upper room. The doors were shut and locked. It says, because they were afraid of the Jews, and Jesus came into them, and he showed them his hands and his side, and it says that the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Eight days later, he peered to them again. That, this time, uh, Thomas was with them, and Jesus said to Peter, uh, to Thomas, go ahead, touch, touch my wounds, Thomas. Put your hand into my side. So Jesus appeared to Peter. He appeared to the 12. Peter, uh, Paul, excuse me, goes on and he says, well, then he appeared to 500 brothers and sisters at one time. And Paul reports this. He says, most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. They had passed. So early, in the, uh, in, early in, into the mid and late first century, there were still many of these eyewitnesses that had seen Jesus resurrected. They saw him. And it's as if Paul is saying, look, if you want their names and numbers, if you want to go talk to them and visit them, their eyewitnesses, go talk to them. They're still living. They're still living. Go find them and go talk to them. You see, these witnesses could have easily unmasked Paul and Peter and James and the others as madmen. These people could have, could have made a fortune. They could have made a profit on this. I mean, Christianity was wrecking the economy of, of those who were, who were involved in mythology, right? All the, the false religions. I mean, it was wrecking their the idol worship and all of that. People were being saved. They were closing down their little idol stores. I mean, it was, as, as Christianity grew, it would have been a profit for them to come out and to say, this is all a big hoax, and let me tell you what happened. He appeared to 500 brothers and sisters. Then Paul says, then he's also appeared to James. Who is James? Well, James was uh, the half-brother, one of the half-brothers of Jesus. James knew Jesus for most of Jesus' life. No doubt his mom, Mary, Jesus' mom, told James about Jesus' miraculous birth. I would imagine that she told him about the angelic announcements that, that happened before and, and uh, both before uh, the birth of Jesus. I think James was most likely to have witnessed some of the miracles of Jesus. Perhaps when Jesus turned water into wine. It was a family wedding kind of deal. And perhaps James uh, was a witness to that. But here's what you need to know. James, the half-brother of Jesus, was not a believer during the earthly ministry of Jesus. It wasn't until later that James became 
a believer when he saw the resurrected Christ. We know that because we find James in the early chapter of Acts, Acts chapter 1. He's in the upper room with his mother Mary, with 120 other disciples following uh, the ascension of Jesus. They're in the upper room and they are praying together. James later became the first pastor of the church at Jerusalem. You see, James, while not a believer during much of Jesus' earthly ministry, perhaps because he knew Jesus and he grew up with Jesus, can you imagine having a brother who never did anything wrong? Right? How many of you had a brother? I was always glad that I could pin things on my brothers. You know what I mean? Like, he did it. He did it. James had a perfect brother. James was convinced that Jesus had risen from the dead. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 8, he says, last of all, Jesus appeared to one born at the wrong time. He also appeared to me, Paul says. You remember Paul's story. Paul was completely convinced that Jesus was dead. Paul was going around the, 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 the communities at that time, finding Christians and putting them in jail. He was so convinced that Jesus was dead, and he thought he was doing God a favor by stamping out the name of Jesus and anyone preaching about a resurrected Jesus, putting them in jail. But Paul was converted on the Damascus Road, and Paul, the one writing the, this epistle, 1 Corinthians, to the Corinthian church, he he is now proclaiming, yes, Jesus is risen. I saw the risen Jesus. You see, listen, the resurrection of Jesus is a documented historical fact with eyewitnesses in an empty tomb. By the way, the resurrection is also a documented fact of secular history. Did you know this? Did you know this? The Jewish historian Josephus, who lived shortly after the time of Christ, and you can Google him, you can read his writings, they're, they're, they're spread widely. Um, he wrote this concerning Jesus. He said, now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was the Christ. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men against us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him, for he appeared to them alive again the third day. As the divine prophets had foretold, these and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him and the tribe of Christians so named from him are not extinct at this day. This is a historian in the very first century. And so it's a documented historical fact. And so the resurrection of Jesus is not some cleverly uh, publicized stunt. This was not a stunt. This was not something that was staged by some wily first century Jews. Rather, it is one of the most solidly substantiated facts in all of history. And that leads me to the third proof of the resurrection, and that is the early church transformation. You know, after Calvary, after the crucifixion of Jesus, the disciples were desolate. They were fearful. They were in hiding. 
The, the portrait that is painted in, in John chapter 20 and verse 19 is that they were afraid. They were in despair. Their dreams had been shattered and they're locked in this room and they're hiding out for dear life. Their leader had been executed. What was going to happen to them? They didn't know. But something happened to radically reorient this original group of followers because a short time later, these discouraged disciples were aglow with confidence and fear in the face of persecution their timidity was replaced with courage their fear was replaced with boldness their weakness was replaced with power and these ordinary men were transformed from these frightened wimps into one of the most effective missionary organizations the world has ever seen what caused this amazing change in them what motivated them to go everywhere proclaiming the message of the risen Christ? Was it for money? <laughs> nope. Was it for fame? Nope. Was it for power? No. It was because they believed, they saw the resurrected Jesus and it forever changed their outlook and their lives. And so by the testimony and the preaching of these men, the gospel was proclaimed and people were converted and the church grew. And for the past 2,000 years, lives have been transformed by the resurrected Christ. And you can look around this room and you can see lives that have been transformed and are being transformed by the risen Christ. Let me tell you about some others. One guy, his name was Simon Greenleaf. He was the royal professor of law at Harvard Okay, this is from 1833 to 1848. Simon Greenleaf helped bring Harvard Law School to preeminence, right? You can Google this guy's name. You can read about him. He was, he's been called the greatest, listen, he's been called the greatest authority on legal evidences in all of world history, okay? This guy, was, this guy wasn't some shabby schmuck, this guy was a legal mastermind. Well, Simon Greenleaf turned his focus upon the resurrection of Jesus. He used all the laws of, of evidence to examine the, the resurrection of Jesus, and he concluded that it is a historical event. And Simon Greenleaf said that anyone who examines the evidence for it honestly will be convinced that this is the case. Let me tell you about another guy. His name's Fran Morrison. He was a, a British lawyer and, and author who died in the 1950s. He set out to write a, a book repudiating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But as he examined the evidence for the resurrection, this skeptical lawyer found it so overwhelming that he was forced to accept it and became a believer. And the book he wrote is entitled, Who Moved the Stone? Google it. Order it. Read it. And it sets forth the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. And the first chapter of that book is called The Book That Refused to Be Written. He set out to write a book disproving the resurrection of Jesus, and he wrote a book telling his story and reaffirming that the resurrection of Jesus is a historical fact. 
somebody more modern, a, a gentleman by the name of Lee Strobel. You've heard of him. Many of you have. Uh, uh, here was the, uh, a former investigative journalist of the Chicago Tribune. He was an atheist. And his wife was, became saved, and she invited him to church, and he began to see a change in her life. And he was like, something's wrong with this. And, and so he wanted to rescue his wife from Christianity, and so he set out to disprove the resurrection of Jesus. This is an investigative journalist. And so he used all of his skills, and this atheist in that journey became a Christian. You can read his book, A Case for Christ. You can watch the movie, A Case for Christ, that tells the story about how Lee Strobel became a believer as you looked at the proofs of the resurrection. Let me tell you about one other guy. His name is J. Uh, Warner Wallace. He's a former cold case homicide detective uh, of the LAPD. He's been featured on Dateline more than any other homicide detective. And he also was an atheist. Someone invited him to church, him and his wife, and he went in and he sat down one, uh, one Sunday and, and the preacher said something like, Jesus was the most influential uh, uh, person in all of human history. And Wallace was like, that's a big statement. And so he told his wife walking out, I'm going to buy me a Bible. I got to check this out. What is this big claim about this Jesus? And that began James studying for, for several years. And you can, you can find him on the internet. Google his name, J. Warner Wall, uh, Wallace. You can, you can find his books, Cold Case, Cold Case Christianity and A Person of Interest. Uh, great books. I would encourage you to, to read them. But here is a, a guy who, who solved homicides without bodies and he used all of his skills and as he, as he examined the resurrection of Jesus, Wallace is a believer today, and he's an apologist. Go, go check out his website and his app as he, as he shares with Christians how to defend their faith. What am I trying to say to you tonight? I'm trying to tell you the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you will honestly look at the proofs, you will come to the same conclusion. Well, what does this mean for us? Let's talk about the power of the resurrection then. You see, the, the power-packed impact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, because the resurrection is real, it means something for us today. And let me tell you simply two things. First of all, it means this. It means that our faith is genuine, church. Our faith is the real deal. Our faith in Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus, that he died, that he was buried, and that he arose again, this is the genuine faith. This is the real faith in all of human history. Paul wrote that if there's no resurrection from the dead, man, our lives are meaningless. We have wasted our time. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, the words will be here on the screen behind me. He's like, hey, man, if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, then he died in vain. He's a liar. Uh, he has no power to save. He can't save anybody today. And Paul says, man, our preaching is a waste of time. Our faith is foolish. Our worship, our following Jesus, our living in obedience to his word, it's all a waste of time. And Christians are liars, Paul says, if Jesus didn't raise from the dead. Our testimony is false. And 
Paul basically says we are mentally deranged. Well, some may think that. I think I've given people some excuse once in a while to think maybe Christians are mentally deranged, you know, sad to say. Paul says, hey, Jesus didn't raise from the dead. We are lost in our sins because a dead Savior can't save anyone. And our departed loved ones, they are dead and in the ground. And he says that if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, we are to be pitied as miserable human beings. But then this one-time man who went out to persecute anyone preaching of the resurrected Jesus, this Paul says that Jesus did in fact raise from the dead just like he said he would. So what does that mean? It means that Jesus' words, his trustworthiness, his suffering, his death have all been vindicated at his resurrection. You see, when Jesus Christ arose from the dead, it was a public announcement that God was fully satisfied with the sacrificial death of his son, that God had accepted the payment that Jesus made for our sin. That's what it means. Jesus has been vindicated. It means that our preaching is not a waste of time. It means our faith is, is not wasted. Our, we're not liars. We're not lost. Our loved ones are not departed and and nowhere. They are living in his presence. We're not to be pitied. We're to be envied by all those who see our new life in Christ and hear our message of salvation through the shed blood of Jesus Christ and his empty tomb. So what are the implications of that? I can think of two. First, salvation is available to everyone. Everyone. Because Jesus died, was buried, and rose again, uh, Paul wrote, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Anyone can be saved. But it takes believing in him. Believing that he is Lord. Confessing with your mouth that God has raised him from the dead when your heart turns to him in confession and faith, God saves the lost sinner. You know what that means? It means that there is hope for humanity. I know sometimes, man, you turn the news on it, it just feels hopeless. But because Jesus died and rose again, church, there is hope for humanity. There is hope for the hurting people that we know. There is hope, and his name is Jesus Christ. Salvation is attainable, and the other implication is that sanctification is attainable. That means that that we as Christians, we as believers, that the life, the same resurrection power that, that that brought Jesus from death to life is living within us. The resurrection power of God Because Jesus Christ, through his Holy Spirit, lives in us. The resurrection power of Jesus lives inside of us. That is good news. Paul said this in Romans, the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. Are you a believer? The spirit of God who rose Jesus from the dead lives inside of you, giving you the power to live the Christian life. 
life. We don't have to live in the deadness of our old life. We now have a power within us to live a life that honors God, that is Christ-like. The resurrection assures our sanctification when we simply live through his resurrection power. Well, our faith is genuine. And I think the great second impact is that our future is glorious. It's, it's glorious. Let's just think about this for a minute, I'll be done. Why is our future glorious? Well, first, because our enemy death is defeated. You know, death is the great equalizer. It knocks at every door, whether someone is young or old, rich or poor. Sometimes it comes unexpected, right? Hopefully after a long and full life, but sometimes it comes abruptly and far too soon for our own estimation. And yet, there aren't any guarantees that we're going to live to an advanced age, are there? Is there? We know that death is coming. Death is coming to every one of us, but it doesn't need to be feared. Why? Because Jesus forever took away the power of death. Peter proclaimed this on the day of Pentecost. He said, God raised Jesus from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep hold on him. You see, death lost its grip on Jesus. And so the resurrection of Jesus means that Jesus not only defeated death for himself, but that he defeated death for us. I, I don't think anybody has said it more eloquently than C.S. Lewis in his 1947 book, Miracles. He wrote this, the New Testament writers speak as if Christ's achievement in rising from the dead was the first event of its kind in the whole history of the universe. He is the first fruits the pioneer of life. He has forced open a door that has been locked since death, the death of the first man. He met, fought, and beaten the king of death, and everything is different because he has done so. This is the beginning of the new creation, a new chapter in cosmic history that has been opened. And so because Jesus conquered death, he has forever pulled the stinger out of death for you and me. Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians 15. When this corruptible, right? When this corruptible is clothed with incorruptibility, this mortal is clothed with immortality, then the saying that is written will take place. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where death is your victory, where death is your sting, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ. And so, the most essential message of Easter, one of the most essential messages of what we are celebrating here tonight is that as a follower of Jesus, you do not have to fear death. We don't have to live in fear. We can be absolutely certain, absolute, absolutely confident in his love and in his provision of salvation. We don't have to be afraid of what the future holds. Our future is glorious. Why? Because our enemy death has been defeated. Also, because our resurrection is guaranteed. Not only has death been defeated, but Jesus, by his resurrection, he, is, uh, he assures that we too will be resurrected. That long after they put us in the ground, 
long after they, they throw the dirt on top of the casket, that that will not be our end. Paul wrote this, 1 Corinthians 15. He said, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is uh, the first of a great harvest of all who have died. So you see, just as death came into the world through a man, now the resurrection from the dead has become, begun through another man. That first, what Paul says, or that first of a great harvest, it speaks of the, the first installment of a, of a harvest to eternal life. Jesus' resurrection guarantees our resurrection. Paul wrote in Romans 8, and if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through his spirit who lives in you. That may not seem like a lot of comfort sitting here right now. But I'm telling you what, when you read that verse with the family who's standing over a casket, the scripture gives great, great comfort. When you're saying goodbye to a loved one for you don't know how long till you see him again in heaven, the scripture gives us great comfort to know it's not the end. It's not the end. His resurrection guarantees ours. Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians, he said, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, concerning those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, in the same way, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For we say this to you by the word of the Lord. We who are still alive at the Lord's coming will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the archangel's voice, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead will rise first. Then we who are still alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so will we always be with the Lord. And at that moment, Paul writes that he's going to transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. And what does all that mean? It means that God's going to resurrect our body. We're going to be caught up together with him in the air, and we are going to have a brand new glorified body. You know, that replaced knee you're hobbling around on, that broken hip, all those aches and pains, the shoulders that are crackling, and, you know, I mean, boy, it's tough living in a world where our bodies are, are, are torn apart by the curse. But all that's going to change. We're going to get a brand new body. What's, what's this all mean? It means this. It means that we can trust his word. You see, Jesus said, it was on the morning of his resurrection, the angels proclaimed that Jesus was risen just as he said. He told you he was going to rise from the dead. And he rose from the dead. And if Jesus has made this promise that because of his resurrection, we will be resurrected, if the one who said, I'm going to be resurrected, and he was resurrected, you can trust his word when he says, because of my resurrection, you will be resurrected. Again, boy, that's a whole lot of comfort when we're standing by the graveside of one of our loved ones. We can trust his word. I think our future is also glorious. I'll give you two others quickly. We'll, we'll be done. I think also because our inheritance 
is secure. We read this verse. Scott read this at the beginning of the service. Peter says he's given us the new birth through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. That's awesome, isn't it? That because of the resurrection of Jesus, this world is not our final home. Amen? Amen. Jesus defeated death. He's going to resurrect our dead bodies, and in heaven, he has reserved for us a glorious inheritance that will not ever fade. It won't be tarnished. Sin will never creep in. No one can get in there and take it away or steal it away. The, the economy can't dwindle it away. Our inheritance is reserved in heaven for us. What does that mean? It means that we can live with expectation. That no matter what happens tomorrow or the next day or this week, no matter how, whatever happens in the economy or the world or however things fall apart, we know that this world is not our home. We're just a passing through and that God has a better place for us reserved in heaven by his own power. Whoo! That's because of the resurrection of Jesus. You see, we have a glorious future, the final one. We have a glorious future because our labor is not in vain. Paul concludes 1 Corinthians 15 by saying this. He says, therefore, okay, whenever you see the word therefore in the Bible, what, what should you do? You should find out what it's there for. Why is it therefore what? what? Read, if you read chapter 15, therefore, because Jesus is risen, and because he will raise our body in the last day. Paul says this. He wraps up the whole conversation about the resurrection. He says, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work. Why? Because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Woo! You see what's going on here? We're going to die. But Jesus defeated death. We're going to be resurrected, and we have an eternal, secure inheritance in heaven. And there in heaven, we will be rewarded for what we do for Christ in this life. What does that mean? It means this. Your life can count for eternity right now. Can't live in the past, right? We can't live in the future. We can only live in the present. Really, all we have is the present, and we have eternity. Can't live in the past, can't live in the future. We have the present and we have eternity. Why? Because in the present, we can live for Christ and we can make our life count for Christ in eternity. And we will be rewarded. When we get into heaven, we will be rewarded then for what we do for him now, right now. And so Paul says, Paul says, so be steadfast. Be unmovable. Use your life, use your time in the present moment to labor for Christ, to do the Lord's work. Well, what's all this mean? Let me give you our next steps and I'm done. First, well, believe in him. Believe in him. He's the resurrected Savior. Maybe you have a lot of doubts about that. That's okay. What I'd encourage you to do is do the research. Don't just write it off. Do what Lee Strobel's done. Do, do what uh, men like J. Warner Wallace 
has done. These were men who were atheists who, who decided, I can't just write this off. I have to do the research. I have to discover for myself the answer. Would you be so honest with yourself and with Jesus to, to look into it and to study it? But if you're not a believer, why, why, why is Jesus not your Savior? Would you believe in him? The second next step is to walk with him. You believed in him? Now walk with him. He's risen. Don't act like he's dead. I th- I'm afraid sometimes we, as Christians, we act like Jesus is dead, like we don't ever talk to him. We don't ever think about him, you know? And that's just not how God intended it for be, to be. He intends for us to walk just every day with him, learning from him and walking with him and loving him. And that's the third one here. Just as we walk with him, living for him. Because at our resurrection, that is all that's going to matter. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. We believe that we, after we die, we will rise again and we'll stand before him and we'll be rewarded by him. And so what else matters other than to live for him? Amen? He's risen. He's risen. He is alive. We have so much to rejoice in this Easter weekend, don't we? Let's believe. Let's walk with him. Let's live for him. Father, thank you. Thank you that Jesus conquered the grave. Thank you for eternal life through his name. Thank you for the resurrection power that lives within every one of us who believe, may we live and walk in that power, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.